0: Welcome to New Mexico in Focus. This is the podcast for Monday, August 9th, 2021. And as always, I'm your host, Kevin McDonald, an executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. We've got another great episode for you here. uh, A couple of interviews about PFAS contamination. This is something you've heard us talk a lot about in the last year. We have a website dedicated to our enterprise reporting on this called Groundwater War. PFAS are a family of chemicals that have major health risks and they bioaccumulate, which means they, once they get into your body or the groundwater, they don't break down and they're very hard to deal with and get rid of. We have known contamination around about a handful of military installations in New Mexico, most notably Cannon and Holloman Air Force bases with really high levels and these PFAS chemicals have even been found in some wells of the Clovis water supply near Cannon Air Force Base. Uh, and we've done a lot of reporting on this, and in part because of that reporting, a former Cannon firefighter reached out to us. His name is Kevin Ferrara, and he wanted to share his story of having worked with these chemicals, which were found in eight Triple F firefighting foams. That's aqueous firefighting foams that contain the PFAS chemicals. It is an enlightening and scary in many ways interview. We are so thankful for Kevin for sharing his story with us. He sat down with our Groundwater War correspondent, Laura Pascus and we only had time in the show last week for a little bit of the conversation. We wanted to bring you the full conversation here. We hope you'll give it a listen.
1: Kevin Ferrara, thank you for joining me from Pennsylvania today. I'm glad to have you here to talk about PFAS and the Air Force and um, AFFF um, firefighting foam that has these toxic chemicals in it. Can we start with, you were an Air Force firefighter, can you give us a little like overview of your career?
2: Sure. you know, first and foremost, you know, thanks for having me on the show. Um, you know, I welcome the opportunity to to get my story out there. So my my Air Force career started in 1991. Um, I left Central Pennsylvania, uh, joined the Air Force, um, started my first uh, training was at Chanute Air Force Base in Ranto, Illinois. That's where if you were going to be a firefighter in the Air Force, um, that's where you went for training at the time. Com- uh, completed my training there, and then. Uh, My first assignment was at Cannon Air Force Base in Clovis, New Mexico. Uh, I was there for four years. Um, After that, um, in 95, I I left, I got out of the Air Force, returned to Pennsylvania for a few years. But my passion was firefighting and I I wanted to come back in as a firefighter. So in 2001, I rejoined the Air Force, uh, went to Davis-Monthan Air Force Base in Tucson, Arizona found my way to Germany for four years. And then uh, as my career started wrapping up, I finished at Langley Air Force Base in Hampton, Virginia.
1: Okay. And what is the sort of the daily routine of an Air Force firefighter? You're doing um, training and testing and, and what, what's that like?
2: So an Air, an Air Force firefighter, <clears throat> excuse me, it's pretty much the same as a municipal firefighter. Uh, with the exception, you know, obviously in the Air Force, we have aircraft. Um, so it, it's like an airport. Um, that's really the only thing that's different from a municipal fire department that you may find um, within your local community. Uh, most fire departments in the Air Force worked a, a 24 on, 24 off shift. So you worked every other day, every two weeks, you got what we called a Kelly day. So it was an extra day off. Um, But yeah, you know, firefighting is, you know, it's pretty much the same. Um, You know, we always kid, it's put the wet stuff on the red stuff. And, uh, you know, with a few specialized things, you know, in the military, now obvious, you know, like I said, with the aircraft, um, you know, for deployments, uh, for, you know, when we deploy, you know, to to foreign countries and everything, that's that's really about the only thing that's different than what you may see uh, within your local communities.
1: So in the late 1970s, the U.S. military started using this AFFF that has PFAS, these toxic substances in it. And around 2006, the military started phasing that out at European military bases. And then in 2016, started phasing it out at U.S. bases. But back in the 1990s, what did you know about this AFFF that you were using on a daily
2: basis? Well, to be honest, we didn't know anything about um, what PFAS, you know, what PFAS was and what F really was. Um, you know, when I first started in 1991 at knew that was the first time that I was in contact with firefighting foam. Um, you know, I had heard about it, never actually seen or put hands on it. And as we were using it, the characteristics of it looked just like your dish soap when you wash dishes it suds up it it's the same color um you know all of that and we were told it was soap and water you know our instructors had told us a triple firefighting foam is just soap and water it's perfectly safe you don't have to worry about it um you know of course now through research and everything uh we found those documents that says you know dating back to the 70s not so much it's not it's not safe
1: yeah, there are these studies that go back to like the late 1960s that that show the toxicity of PFOs in in lab animals and workers and some of the like 3M and DuPont factories. But you weren't given any sort of warning or notice or information.
2: Not not a bit, um, you know, throughout my entire career, my 20 year career, um, you know, there was there was no mention that. A triple F firefighting foam was hazardous or, or toxic. Um, you know, almost every every installation I was assigned to, starting at Chanute, Cannon Air Force Base, you know, other bases, we were told the same thing. It, it was repeated: a triple F was soap and water. It was perfectly safe, and and you know, we we took that as being the truth because you know, our leadership, we expected those individuals to know what they were talking about. And we had no reason to doubt them. Um, And it was only, uh, you know, years after I retired, um, you know, I started uncovering the truth. And it's like, not so much. You know, we found the fish kill studies. We found the lab animal studies. um, And, you know, it was just like our leadership knew about this and they, they withheld it. Um, to me, they intentionally withheld that from those that use the products. And now we see where we are today. We have individuals that are sick and, and uh, you know, unfortunately dying because of that exposure to the, the products that they knew was hazardous to us.
1: So being a firefighter carries a certain amount of risk. Being in the military carries a certain amount of risk. But what are your concerns and the concerns you're hearing from other veterans about their exposure to PFAS?
2: The, the biggest concern right now is, and you know, all the firefighters that I talk to, they ask me because of the exposure that they've had to PFAS uh, and to you know firefighting foam, are they going to get cancer? Um, that's their biggest fear because there's no magic pill to get rid of PFAS. Uh, once you're exposed to it, once it's in your body, it stays in your body for years. Um, so their, their biggest concern is, are they going to get sick because of this? And unfortunately, the DOD, the military, is not telling them anything, um, you know, the, the hazards or risks associated with it. They're doing their own independent research. They're, they're, they're contacting me, other firefighters. And we've always said firefighting is like a brotherhood. It's a huge network. And we, we bounce things off of each other, ideas, and we constantly network and communicate. And that's how we're learning more and more about PFAS. It's not from the VA the, the Department of Defense, you know, the Air Force, these military installations. It's independent research that we're, we're doing on our own and sharing those, those, those findings.
1: So what has, um, as people have expressed concerns, say to the Air Force or the, the military, what has the Air Force's or the military's response been to veterans concerned about PFAS?
2: Um, to be honest, not much. Uh, you know, we've, the, the DOD and the Air Force, they're starting last year, last October, they're, they're starting to do PFAS blood testing. Um, so they, they know there's some hazards associated with PFAS, so they're, they're testing that. But as for, you know, relaying anything, you know, health-wise, um, things that they should be concerned with, um, offering pamphlets, brochures, everybody that I've talked to, they're saying that's not happening. Um, even the VA, the VA is not providing really any information on PFAS uh, exposure, and that concerns veterans and firefighters. Um, you know, they they're, they're thirsty; they they want this information. They want to be educated on it, uh, but they're hitting roadblocks, you know, one after the other, and they're they're simply not getting that information.
1: So, can we talk about the VA a little bit, um, if? If for instance, you have concerns, health problems or concerns, can you describe the process for a veteran going to the VA and maybe seeking information, seeking blood tests?
2: Sure. So, uh, you know, most individuals I've talked to, you know, veteran firefighters, they approach their their doctors at the the Veterans Affairs uh, and they express, you know, their concerns. A lot of times they're getting pushback from these doctors uh, because if you actually go on the VA's website uh, for PFAS, it says they don't recommend a PFAS blood test because they consider almost everybody, every American has detectable levels of PFAS in their blood. So they don't recommend that. So, you know, firefighters will walk into their the VA clinics, uh, speak to their doctor and ask, you know, often demand these PFAS blood tests and they're told, no, the VA does not offer those. Um, you know, and in regards to PFAS itself, it's pretty much the same thing. They're, they're not getting really any information from these VA doctors, uh, you know, because for for whatever reason it may be, they, you know, these doctors aren't aware of what PFAS is, um, you know, installation physicians, uh, you know, a lot of the firefighters I've talked to, they said their own doctors had never heard of PFAS up until last year when, when some emails and, and things were being socialized through the medical community, they had no idea what it is. And and they're doing some research on their own because their leadership is not providing very much information on it as well.
1: And so have you, or people, you know, have you, have you had your blood tested? Do you have PFAS? Are you having health problems that you think are related to this exposure?
2: So for me, um, you know, I've had a PFOA, PFOA blood test. Um, now my, in my insurance provider, which is TRICARE or Humana Military uh, is what it is now, that's the only thing that they tested for. And it took me literally a year to track down the, the testing codes for that blood test. And my, you know, my civilian doctor here in Central PA, once I described, you know, why I wanted the test and what PFAS was, he was absolutely all for it. He said, we have to get you tested. We have to make sure you're okay. We had the blood test done. It went to a lab here in Pennsylvania. It came back. Unfortunately, it said non-detectable. And I'm not surprised at that because this particular lab that tested it, they have on their detectable limit, each each lab that you get your blood tested through, their equipment is calibrated differently. There's no real standard. So this particular lab, they had a higher detectable level than what others do. So that's a lot of firefighters I've talked to went through the same lab, and they found the same thing. Uh, with PFOA, it comes back as non-detectable. And some of these firefighters have has said to me they were slathered in foam. There's no way it should come back as non-detectable. Um, the other side of that is, you know, it's it's costly for because the VA and the DOD is not testing veterans, uh, former firefighters like myself, we have to pay out of pocket. Uh, if we want the same test that the DOD is doing today, we have to pay out of pocket for that. And it's, it's not right. So, you know.
1: So, and just kind of to, to remind people there are thousands of toxic substances in sort of the PFOS family and PFOA and PFAS are the two that the military has been testing for in local groundwater, such as in, in Clovis and near Holloman Air Force Base, um, but there are thousands of these chemicals and these replacement foams oftentimes might have other types of PFAS other than PFOA and PFOS. Have you, have you been paying attention to kind of the replacement process and how those other sorts of chemicals might be affecting people's health or local groundwater, things like that?
2: Absolutely. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm following, I'm following this process daily. Um, you know we can break it down to hourly you know i'm constantly you know finding new things on the internet um because again it goes back to that i have to research this information i have to dig for it because it's not being readily provided to the public to firefighters to military personnel um, so what i found so far is that you know the, the dod is looking at a non-fluorinated foam and the The 2020, and I believe the 2021 National Defense Authorization Acts both state that by fiscal year 24, the military has to switch to a non-fluorinated foam. So there's this sudden scramble to find uh, what the Air Force calls eco-friendly or a safer foam. So right now they have it down to, I believe six that they're looking at. Um, The pushback is the mil-spec. It has to meet a certain specification that the military has established uh, for fire, you know, firefighting um, with uh, aircraft fuels and uh, and other fuels. Um, so that's how they they narrowed it down to down to the six right now. Will they meet that that suspense date? I hope so. Um, I'm not putting a lot of faith in it, to be honest, uh, simply because they've kicked this can down the road so long uh, in terms of you know, finding uh, an alternative, um, you know, so I'm I'm keeping my fingers crossed.
1: I know you hear from lots of veterans in particular, um, but I don't feel like it's a conversation that's really happening um, publicly in a lot of arenas. And I'm curious why you think there might be some reluctance among veterans or active duty military members to talk about their concerns, to talk about their exposure, to talk about this issue?
2: Well, first first and foremost, with active duty military and DOD civilians, they have a fear of reprisal. If they speak up about this, they're in fear that they're going to be punished in some fashion uh, for voicing their concerns. Um, Now, as for former firefighters, uh, veterans like myself, you know, yes, we're still military in a sense, uh, we're retirees, uh, but we have a little bit more leeway as to, you know, voicing our concerns and everything and and, and showing our frustrations. Um, Not so much with, uh, like I said, with the the active duty folks, um, because even before I retired, I have witnessed it to where firefighters would express some concerns about certain things and almost instantly, their leadership would frown upon that um, and you know, punish them in, in some fashion uh, for really voicing valid concerns. And, and, and PFAS is definitely a valid concern. It, it, it affects one's health, and they, they should be talking about it. And they should have—they shouldn't have to be afraid to do so. They should be able to do so freely um, and have a an open and you know an open dialogue with their their leadership and and come up with some solutions but that's that's not happening
1: i'm wondering if um in addition to that like i grew up with police officers and firefighters and um there is a certain uh culture and pride and um you know, maybe even expectation that you don't talk about your anxieties, you don't talk about your concerns. Do you think that that plays into this at all or no?
2: Um, yeah, a little a little bit. Um, You know, we've always said, you know, don't. Any any organization, don't air your dirty laundry. this is this is a lot of dirty laundry with, with PFAS. Uh, you know, we've uncovered the what I consider to be a cover up. Um, you know, dating back decades ago, um, and I think it was only because of public peer pressure. Word some word got out somehow to the public, and it picked up some momentum. And really, I think that's how we we have learned the significance of PFAS contamination. You know, in our military installations. In communities, uh, so whoever started that, you know, I thank them for doing that, uh, and you know, we're we're picking up the the pace now. Um, but yeah, you know, it's there. There is, uh, you know, it's like I said with with the military, um, it's almost an unwritten code that you don't talk about certain things, um, even though it affects your health, um, and that that should not, like I said before, that that should not happen. We should be able to freely talk about. Um, concerns, you know, health concerns that you have.
1: So researching PFAS and working on this story over the past couple of years, I've often been reminded of, of um, how veterans have had to deal with the impacts of Agent Orange, exposure to Agent Orange. And I'm curious if you see any parallels between what has happened with Agent Orange and what's happening with PFAS.
2: I, ironically, we consider PFAS contamination, AFFF uh, contamination, the the 21st century Agent Orange. Um, you know, we had we had the Agent Orange dealings with you know the, the Vietnam era. Now we're dealing with PFAS. Uh, a lot of firefighters, a lot of veterans have have tied those two together. Um, and you look at how long it's taken the military to really recognize the impact that Agent Orange had on those Vietnam veterans. And I, I really hope we don't have the same thing with PFAS because um, every day that ticks by more and more veterans, their dependents, innocent civilians living you know, near these, milita- these contaminated military installations are becoming sick. And we have to, we, we know the contamination is there. It's, it's proven, but we have to get the military, the DOD Uh, to step up and start taking action um, to really shut off what I call the source. You can't you can't clean up something until you turn off the source of contamination.
1: And so what would you like to see at this point? How would you like to see the Air Force and the VA moving forward? What are some concrete steps you think they could take? Um,
2: the, the, The first one is start conducting their own research. Um, a recent congressional hearing, they were asked, both the DOD and the VA, asked if they were doing their own research, and both entities replied that they were not. They were relying on you know third-party research. They have the capability of doing their own research. They have the, 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 the personnel to survey um, if they would just do that. They're receiving millions and millions and millions of dollars from Congress, but they're not putting it to good use. Um, they, they keep saying they're doing research and testing. Well, we, we haven't seen this research and testing. Where, where's the money going? Um, secondly, take that money, take the funding that Congress is allocating to, to the military each and every year and start doing remediation efforts. Um, you know, Again, it goes back to you have to, before you can move forward, you have to start at the source of this contamination. Um, they know where it's at but they're not applying any of this funding or efforts to actually remediate um, the, the source of this contamination. Um, so really it, it's almost they're, they're being reactive instead of proactive. I, I wish the military would be more proactive. Had they been proactive years ago, we may not have been in the situation we are today, but unfortunately we are, but there's you know, there's opportunity for them to be proactive, be leaders, Uh, be good stewards of the community, and and do what's right.
1: So here at NMPBS, we've done a lot of coverage of the groundwater contamination um, from Cannon Air Force Base and Holloman Air Force Base. I'm wondering if you can kind of take us back in time a little bit to when that PFAS was on the surface and kind of describe the sorts of daily activities of of how it would have gotten Into the soil, into the groundwater.
2: Sure. So, you know, like I I, like I said, I I started at Cannon Air Force Base in 1991, uh, and I was there from 1991 to 1995. So, for for me, and the the personnel that were there with me, every shift, and again, we worked 24 hours on, 24 hours off. We would do what we called daily operational checks, and that essentially consisted of those that were assigned to a crash truck uh, an airport firefighting vehicle we would drive out along the flight line and at some point we would stop activate the firefighting system uh, which involved the the firefighting foam we would discharge that foam onto the soil we we couldn't put it on the taxiway because it was a little slippery and we didn't want the, the aircraft to drive over it so we would discharge it into the soil it would set there for a few hours uh, and if you were to go back a few hours or so later, it would all be soaked into the ground. You, you wouldn't be able to see it anymore. And we, we did this every day for the, the four years that I was there. Uh, I can't imagine how much contamination occurred before I got the cannon or firefighters got the Holman. And that same process of doing daily operational checks occurred at every Air Force installation. It was almost a standard. That's what you did to make sure the trucks operated right. So, whatever happened at Cannon Air Force Base, I can say with almost 100 percent certainty, the same thing happened at Holloman Air Force Base uh, and other locations. Um, Kirtland Air Force Base in, in Albuquerque. That the same thing would have occurred there. Um, so you know it's and and again that that firefighting foam it it sat on the surface eventually it, it it permeated into the soil and just like with with water it you know water will find um you know the the least resistance and those materials end up finding their way into the underground aquifer systems um to where we know today a lot of wells were drilled that's where a lot of residents in, in new mexico uh, through these aquifers receive their drinking water Um, or water for their, their, their livestock. And it's crazy to think today that during those four years that I unknowingly was contaminating the soil and the aquifer in New Mexico, I was at the same time drinking the contaminated water um, through the received through these, these wells, these drinking wells at Cannon Air Force Base. And yet nobody told us that, you know, things were, things were, you know, contaminated or we shouldn't be doing that. Uh, We were just, That's what we were told to do Um, again. You know, we went back to our leadership. They were in those positions. We assumed they knew what they were talking about and um, we never questioned it.
1: One of the things that I've noticed here, and and maybe it's universal at at bases, but we kind of have this rotating commanders um, who are here for a few years and then move on. And I'm curious if 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 you think or or what you think about how that how those changes in leadership affect the air force's ability to feel responsible to the community
2: it it absolutely changes how things get done Um, when you have a rotation of leadership the new leadership is going to come in and prioritize things that they want to work on uh, and see accomplished during their rotation uh, most of these commanders are on, they're in charge for about two or three years. Um, that's about the average. Sometimes you get four or more depending on where they're at. But the as I said, these, these leaders will come in. They have a priority list, and that's the things they work on because that's the things they want to see accomplished um, and you know before they move on. Unfortunately, that impacts PFAS remediation. Um, I would I would think at this point f- for the the Air Force the military PFAS remediation is your number one priority, um, but I really feel it's not at some of these installations, and that's why we're seeing that can being kicked down the road. It's we're not seeing much progress in terms of remediation uh, or efforts, um, you know, or emphasis efforts and emphasis put on PFAS. Um, the swap out, the cleanup, uh, medical care, anything like that.
1: So when you and I talked earlier, you mentioned that you feel a sense of guilt sometimes, and I'm not suggesting that you're responsible for the contamination, but can you talk about that a little bit?
2: Sure. Um, you know, like I said, I mean, when I, when I started at, at Chinook Air Force Base, we were told, you know, a AFFF was just open water um my first assignment at canada force base the same thing was echoed it's soap and water it's perfectly safe Uh, you know we washed our uniforms we washed the trucks we washed our stalls there was incidents where we sprayed foam out uh for fire prevention visits and and young kids played in it because they thought it was cool It it looked like snow um looking back at that you know again the four years that i was there we did this You know, we, we sprayed foam every day, thousands and thousands of gallons of of firefighting foam, um, just while I was there, you know, got into the soil and eventually into the drinking water. And I look back at it now and I hear the stories about, you know, local dairy farmers with their, you know, they're they're contaminated, the the milk, um, their families are contaminated. Um, You know, Clovis residents had to have bottled water. and I, you know I, I say to myself, I'm like, my gosh, you know, for four years, I unknowingly contributed to, to all of that. And it, you, know, I, I do. I, I feel guilty, uh, and I'm certain other firefighters that were there with me would, would share in this. We, had we known then what we know today, there is no way we would deliberately spray A triple F firefighting foam you know into the into the environment into the soil and and allow it to contaminate it uh, you know it's just it, that's it it bothers me that that so many residents in 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 new mexico because while i was at clovis you know Holloman was operational kirtland's operational um and we did the same thing and and you know just to think that there's thousands and thousands really probably millions of of innocent residents that are now contaminated they're they're exposed to pfas through drinking water um, or or other other contact uh, just knowing that what we did affected all of those individuals i mean it, it does it weighs heavily on my mind and it, it, there there is a, a strong sense of guilt there's if 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 I could go back in time and, and tell myself, don't do what you're about to do, I would gladly do it.
1: Right. So you were stationed at Canon, but you're familiar with this issue all across the United States. I'm curious what you wish people around Canon and Holloman understood about what's happening nationwide.
2: So, you know, it's, the the whole the whole PFAS contamination it's I mean it's it's a it's a national issue it's a global issue um, I, I I encourage the residents in New Mexico to pressure their local state federal representatives to socialize information uh, you know pass out information about PFAS contamination um, that's the first start. Is you know educating folks on what PFAS is, how it got into the soil, um, and what preventative measures uh, they need to take today um, to you know to, to minimize their exposure, um, and at you know at the at the same time meet you know try to try to meet with these military officials and establish some type of, of dialogue, some type of relationship between the community and the military. Because um, I've always said, if the military would just come out and apologize and say, we're sorry for what what happened, but we're gonna work on this, we're gonna move forward, that would be a great start, but they're not doing it. It seems like that, that fence line that, that divides the military base and the community you know, even though it's probably like an eight foot high fence, it might as well be a thousand foot high fence because it almost seems like that's the barrier that whatever happens on base, that's the military's uh, issue. And they don't believe anything outside that fence is is their concern. And that's not that's not what our military should be. You know, military is taxpayer funded and it should be an open uh, and cordial dialogue, a, a great working relationship, but we're, we're simply not seeing a, and it. And it, it's happening all over the United States and around the world um, at military installations, um, even foreign countries, there some of their military installations as well. They're, they're dealing with the same thing. There's no, there's a disconnect somewhere and they can't establish that, that communication.
1: Well, Kevin, thank you so much for communicating with us, for talking with me today, I really appreciate it.
2: Again, Laura, I, I appreciate being on and um, I, you know anything that you need, I'm, I'm here to help out. Thank
0: you. And there's much more on the PFAS front. Uh, Third Congressional District Representative Teresa Ledger-Fernandez has done a lot of work recently Uh, on the federal level to deal with this, in part to help out a dairy farm that we have talked about and talked to the owner, Art Skop, of Highland Dairy, where his entire herd of milk cows are basically ruined by PFAS contamination. They cannot be milked, obviously. Uh, There's trouble disposing of them. They can't even be sold for dog food. But Representative Ledger Fernandez is working on A plan where the USDA could offer uh, Mr. Scott some relief, as well as working on efforts to get the EPA to set a lifetime standard uh, and limit for PFAS exposure, both important pieces to the puzzle here in New Mexico. So we had her in studio last week. She sat down with Laura Paskus again, and you can find out more about all this on our Groundwater War site. We mentioned that earlier. Go to NMPBS, look under Local Productions, and then Groundwater War, or you can just search NMPBS and Groundwater War, you'll find all that great reporting. But here now, Representative Ledger-Fernandez and Laura Paskus.
1: Representative Teresa Ledger-Fernandez, thank you for joining me to talk for a few minutes about PFAS today. Well, thank
3: you for having me. This is such an important subject for New Mexico and for my district.
1: Excellent. So the US House recently passed an amendment of yours to the PFAS Action Act that would apply to Highlands Dairy down in Clovis, New Mexico. Can you talk a little bit about the amendment and also the bill that passed the House?
3: So what we passed at the House was the PFAS Action Act because we knew that we needed to address this forever chemicals. They last forever. And the bill would require that it be studied and that PFAS be cleaned up and that we study and set limits for how much can we have PFAS, how much of the chemical can we have in our drinking water? I recognize that that was not enough. That we needed to make sure that we studied and limited and then eliminated uh, PFAS in our food supply as well. This is an example of how An issue at home in our wonderfully diverse and beautiful third congressional district is going to help out everybody across the country. So that was my amendment to make sure it was included in this food supply to protect the food supply. But it came out of the fact that Highlands Dairy by Clovis, New Mexico has been ruined um, because of PFAS in the groundwater there. The cows drank the water that was contaminated, and they ate the grass um, that was contaminated. So the milk from the dairy could no longer be sold in the market, and the cows themselves could also not be sold.
1: So as, if I understand correctly, you've also been talking with Mr. Skop about what USDA might be able to do about his, his cows, which like you said, can't be sold, he can't even sell them for like dog food. Um, How might USDA be able to help him and maybe other farmers out?
3: The USDA has a program where they are allowed to purchase milk, for example, if uh, the EPA has determined and the USDA has determined that that milk is contaminated. So the USDA actually purchased milk from him to account for the fact that the milk had been contaminated through no fault of his own. But they didn't have a way of purchasing the cows themselves because that's what you need to do. Those cows cannot be used. We do not want them in the market. They did not have a way of doing that. Now, the legislature, thanks to the great work of Senator Udall, Heinrich, and uh, now Senator Ben Ray Lujan, had made sure that you could actually purchase the cows themselves. The problem? The USDA never enacted regulations to allow for that. So we have been pushing the USDA to enact those regulations, to enact those regulations on a fast track basis so that they can purchase the cows from uh, Highlands Dairy and uh, help Highlands Dairy kind of get back on their feet because they've been suffering through this. It's been an economic ruin for them and we need to fix it. So the DOD, the Department of Defense kind of caused the problem The EPA is gonna be looking at the environmental aspects, but USDA itself is gonna help with solving the immediate problem. I spoke about this directly with the USDA secretary because he spent two days with me here last month.
1: Okay, so if this bill that passed the House, if it passes the Senate, is signed into law, do we have a sense of how quickly the EPA will actually act on Um, enacting a drinking water standard, classifying PFAS as a hazardous waste. How many years are we looking at, do you think?
3: We're hoping it won't be years and years because everybody recognizes that this is a serious issue that has been ignored. It was ignored by the past administration because they didn't want to deal with it. But now we know that it has these just drastic consequences for our health for our drinking water, for our food supply. So we'll hap- we're hopeful that it will happen quickly. I will say the bill passed with bipartisan support on the floor of the House. So we are looking for bipartisan support in the Senate and hopefully we'll move quickly. Everybody recognizes the urgency of addressing this forever chemical so that we don't you know, destroy our groundwater.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So we've been talking about the EPA specifically with this bill, just to switch gears a little bit to the Defense Department. um, Congress has repeatedly put um, funding and mandates into the annual appropriations bill to set timelines for the military, for cleanup, um, to set all sorts of um, ways for them to move forward. And, And frankly, they have not in many aspects. And I'm curious at this point, like does Congress have control over the US military in terms of getting them to clean up this forever problem?
3: So Congress can appropriate, but it's up to the administration to take the action that we appropriated the money for and that we said, you must do this. So what we saw in the last administration that there wasn't an urgency about uh, addressing um, these environmental concerns. And we have now raised it. I raised it with Cannon Air Force Base directly. The minute I got in as a Congresswoman and met with them, it's one of the first things we talked about. They recognize that we are looking at them now, that we are gonna be doing that kind of oversight to make sure they take action on what Congress has directed them to do. And we have with this administration, the Biden administration recognizes the importance of addressing contamination and especially in disadvantaged communities. And that's exactly what we are seeing in Clovis. So we have right now the means, the funding, but we also have the motivation in President Biden's administration to get this done. So we are very hopeful.
1: So we know how important the military is economically to New Mexico, but we also know we look across at military and DOD or DOE installations across the state and they are big polluters in our state. Um, and when we look at, even if we do get to the cleanup phase for some of these problems, it's millions, in some cases, billions of dollars. With PFOS, we're not even sure what kind of a cleanup can occur. Um, looking out to the long term, how do we know that we're making the right choices for future generations and, and kind of continuing this this relationship where we rely so heavily on the military and yet it's causing such great long-term damage in our state.
3: What we need to do with the military, which we do rely on, is constantly look at what can we put in place to prevent to prevent any future environmental harms and then fully fund the cleanup that's required. This was another issue. You know, LANL's in my district. We all know that you referred to the DOE. We need to make sure that we fully fund the cleanup at LANL because there's that legacy. And then when we talk about what else are we gonna be doing on these bases or doing at LANL, that we do the full environmental review that NEPA calls for. Our National Environmental Policy Act calls for full environmental reviews of what we do when we take federal action. We have not always done that THE PAST, BUT WE ARE GOING TO START INSISTING ON IT NOW AND MOVING FORWARD IN THE FUTURE BECAUSE WE CANNOT MOVE FORWARD IN A WAY THAT SACRIFICES, YOU KNOW, OUR GRANDCHILDREN, OUR CHILDREN FOR A FEW JOBS. WE NEED TO RECOGNIZE THAT WE CAN DO BOTH. WE CAN BOTH HAVE A THRIVING ECONOMY AND HAVE A FOCUS AND A PRIORITY ON OUR ENVIRONMENTAL uh, NEEDS AND OUR ENVIRONMENTAL CLEANUP AND MAKING SURE that we protect this beautiful place we call home i always call it this beautiful place we call home whether it's new mexico or the planet and that we must always take all our actions with that in mind of
1: how do we protect
3: this beautiful beautiful place that we get to call home
1: congresswoman thank you so much for joining me i appreciate it
3: well i loved being here thank you so much for inviting me
0: And while we had Representative Ledger Fernandez in our studio, we wanted to talk to her about what else she is working on in Congress right now. They are in August recess but have been busy, as you've probably been reading about, and following on an infrastructure compromise package. And so Senior Producer Matt Grubbs jumped into the hot seat to talk to her about her take on all of that. They also talk about immigration reform and what we could see Uh, on the near horizon on that front as we see refugees still coming into the United States and the challenge it's created, especially in a border state here like New Mexico. And of course, we couldn't miss the opportunity to talk to her about COVID as we see the Delta variant uh, leading to all sorts of havoc with case counts on the rise here in New Mexico as they are pretty much everywhere. So here again, is Representative Teresa Ledger-Fernandez with Senior Producer, Matt Grubbs.
4: Representative Ledger-Fernandez, thank you so much for being here, we appreciate it.
3: I love coming (laughs) here and I love this show, so thank you for inviting
4: me. Absolutely, I wanted to start with infrastructure. In your campaign, and since you've taken office, you've had the joy of driving around your gigantic district um, but you know the importance of, of declining infrastructure. Um, certainly the roads that you drive on, the bridges that you go over and under, um, also broadband You know, as you visit some of these far-flung communities. Um, how do you feel about what's in, to the extent that you've seen it, um, the infrastructure bill that the Senate will be considering here in short order?
3: We have to address infrastructure with a really bold, bold plan. And that's what we are working on in the House, and that's what we are gonna work on when we look at the totality of the infrastructure package. So what the Senate is working on right now is gonna be one aspect of how we address infrastructure. Let me talk about what we did in the House. So in the House, we passed the Invest in America Act. The Invest in America Act was significant in that it included a lot of very important climate change issues so that we could have more electric Uh, uh, electric charging stations so we could address the moment that we're in with the necessary funding that we need. And indeed in that, in the Invest in America package, I secured $20 million for this broad district, which included fixing the bridges so that the Navajo children can ride a school bus to school, because right now they can't. Uh, So the Superman bridges are going to be fixed. Uh, So that's the kind of thing we need to do is sort of address all those very small things like fixing the bridges so the children can get to school to the larger issues of we must start looking at our infrastructure as an opportunity for both needing the needs we have in this moment as well as the bigger moment that's what we are looking at in the house the senate uh, bipartisan plan has many elements of those but not all of them so what we're going to do is take those take a good look at it i've been giving feedback to our senators we have been giving feedback to the senate with some of the bills that we've uh, introduced and passed like broadband big broadband uh, fan of getting more of it into the ground. And so we have a broadband bill and many of those aspects of that bill are being incorporated into that Senate bipartisan package. But to the extent that it doesn't go far enough, what we're gonna do is look at the reconciliation process and include what we need in the reconciliation package. So we need Americans and New Mexicans to realize that this isn't it because it's not big enough.
4: Um, You mentioned that package. It's extremely sizable, (laughs) a huge. $3.5 trillion as it's being talked about now. Um, And it would include that broader um, sort of definition of infrastructure, things like childcare, healthcare. That sort of thing. Um, it's hard to imagine that you can pay for that without raising taxes. I think the question is probably on who. Um, as you look at funding something that size, how do you favor doing that?
3: Well, I am in favor of the plan that we've been discussing, which is where no one who earns less than 400,000, that's earns less than 400,000 a year, would see any increase. and so. What you'd see is New Mexicans, the vast majority of New Mexicans would not see any increase. In fact, they would see a decrease in their taxes because we're going to make sure that we make permanent the child tax credit, the earned income tax credit. Those benefit the working families, the middle class families of New Mexico. So, But for those who are billionaires, for those corporations who earn billions and don't pay a dime in taxes, they will see fair taxation. So, you know, everybody must pay their fair share and we're going to make sure that corporations can't avoid paying taxes because let's face it, big corporations like Amazon, they, uh, they enjoy the benefits of what our American government provides. Uh, billionaires saw their income skyrocket during the pandemic. We need to have them pay their fair share. So that's how we're going to pay for that.
4: Uh, The president has said that he's willing to use that reconciliation process also to address immigration, um, specifically DACA and um, dealing with the DREAMers as well. Um, Immigration isn't typically thought of something that's a um, uh, budget-related issue necessarily. How do you feel about that approach?
3: It is absolutely the right approach. Listen, I worked uh, on the Immigration Reform and Control Act back uh, in my early days when I was still actually a law student. We did some amazing work around that. Uh, And that was a $1.4 trillion benefit to the economy. We are seeing the same thing when we look at doing immigration reform. It's about the same. A $1.3 trillion benefit to our economy. $700 a year increase in everybody's wages. We would add six years to the solvency of social security. So to look at immigration as an economic benefit and that it should be included in a reconciliation bill, which is looking at budget, is the right thing to do. So we know that immigration makes sense from an economic standpoint. Then you have to ask, well, then why do people oppose it? And it shouldn't be opposed on an economic stance. It shouldn't be opposed on a humanitarian stance. I have been to the border. I have seen the children who the parents have sent to safety. And I need to tell you what reminded me me of a story that is old as the Bible itself. Moses' mother placed her baby in a basket and sent him down the Nile to get him to safety. We are looking at parents and at families that are fleeing violence and that are fearful for their lives, and we must provide them with the asylum and the refuge that our laws provide. And if we don't politicize the issue, then we'd be able to just do that as a matter of course. If we didn't politicize the issue, then we would see the economic benefits of immigration and be able to pass it in regular order, but because we are not getting that support. Um, even among Republicans who want it or are afraid to come out in favor of it, we'll have to do it through reconciliation, but it works because it's an economic benefit to the nation.
4: Should the path to citizenship um, include preferred status for people who are already here? Um, and if so, uh, wouldn't the news that that is going to happen create a further rush to the border for people who want to get across before that law passes?
3: So the the way the American Citizenship Act is, uh, is set up, it would not uh, would not create that rush to the border because it does have a deadline as to when you would be able to apply. And looking at the DACA, the, you know, our wonderful dreamers who are, you know. Our doctors, our future doctors and congresspeople, Raul Ruiz, Dr. Raul Ruiz was brought here as a child undocumented. He's was a dreamer of the past and he is now the chair of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. So what we're doing is those people who've already been here, who were brought here as children, who have been working here, have provi- been providing the essential services for us, they are the ones that we are talking about. It's about 11 million people right now.
4: Okay. Okay. Um, ranch owners, county governments down south along the border, um, they're extremely worried about um, increased um, illegal border crossings. Uh, How would the plan, as you understand it, address some of those concerns about safety both for the migrants and for the people who live on or near the border?
1: Well,
3: if we had an an immigration system that was working, then there would be a, a manner and a way for immigrants to present themselves and to go through an immigration system we don't have that right now let's think of Alice Island right there used to be a way where you wanted to come to the United States and you would be able to do it now that was when you were coming from Europe why don't we have the same thing when you're coming from the Americas right uh, so we need to set that up so that there is a system and a process for presenting yourself um, for immigration for asylum cases at the border and if we did that that would relieve some of the pressure of people trying to cross in very dangerous situations, uh, you know, in the desert, in places where there is not enough water, trying to scale a wall and, and dropping down. So what we need to do is create an immigration system where you can actually present and seek uh, the immigration status that you want at the border.
4: Um, I do want to talk about COVID, but uh, I also don't want to let this pass. You said that You asked the question, why don't we have um, a system like Ellis Island for immigration from the Americas? Do you have an answer for that?
3: Well, I think it's because it has been politicized and they have uh, sought to demonize an other uh, in order to get political gain. And they have sought to demonize Mexicans and Latinos. It's about bigotry. It's about racism.
4: Okay. Um, The FDA right now, uh, as we speak, uh, they're trying to balance this idea of solid science and uh, give the at least the perception that, look, this process wasn't rushed. Um, But they're also getting lots of pressure from employers, from the federal government, state governments, uh, institutions like University of New Mexico, where we are now, um, to get that approval, that full approval of vaccines, specifically the mRNA ones. Um, How do you feel about the timing of that process and the effort um, to let people know, like, hey, we're not doing this just off the cuff? This, right. is, this is being studied.
3: So I think it's important to remember that right now we have had millions of people vaccinated, both in the United States and around the world. Um, look at what's happening in Britain and Israel and uh, the EU countries. And so we have actually a lot of data that this works. Uh, it is right now a, um, a not a full approval, but it is an approval that is, sh- demonstrating to the world that vaccination works, that it's safe. And that this is how we protect our community. This is how we protect those children who can't get vaccinated. This is how we protect immunocompromised people that might not be get, be able to get vaccinated. So rather than trying to lay your hat on different reasons why you, you don't want to get vaccinated, Set that aside and think about the public health and think about your communities. The vaccination works. I got vaccinated back in January because I fly back and forth in a continuation of government, right? We needed every vote to be able to, you know, pass our bills and do our job. I'm fine. Millions of people are fine. Don't seek reasons why not to do it. Think about why you might want to do it. And we need to remember that vaccines have been saving lives for It's more than a century, right? We've had a long time of vaccines saving our lives from smallpox to, you know, chickenpox. Like there is a range of things that we use the vaccines for that we have our children get vaccines. Every year I used to go get my kids vaccinated because otherwise I can't enroll them in school. This is very similar. We're trying to save lives and we're trying to keep the community safe. And so I encourage everybody to get a vaccine as soon as possible, do it for yourself, do it for those children, do it for your neighbors.
4: When you walked in, um, we all had masks on. Um, we're distanced now. Um, we've returned to masking while at work, except in some rare circumstances. Uh, do you foresee the need for more mask mandates, so to speak, or? Are the people who are wearing va- masks now um, the people who are going to be wearing masks regardless? Uh,
3: I think mask mandates make sense uh, if science calls for them. And the fact that we have so many unvaccinated people who uh, might be going to D.C., right? D.C. has low uh, low transmission rates, but we also receive people from across the country. And so they're coming from places where they have very low vaccination rates. Um, so wearing the masks helps everybody. And we need to remember is if we all wear the masks and we all get vaccinated, we'll get through this faster. So rather than fighting it, help us get through it faster, get vaccinated, wear the mask until we get out of this. That way we get through it faster. You know, I heard an interview with somebody who had a business today and it resonated where he said, I'm going to do the mask mandate, I'm gonna follow it because this is how I make sure my business doesn't get closed again. If we want our businesses to stay open, if we want our schools to stay open, if we want our community to be vibrant and lively, then we do everything we can to move past this pandemic. And that includes masks, and that includes vaccinations, and that includes testing. Uh, I'm doing regular tests now because I think it's important for me to know Am I gonna be putting anybody at risk despite the fact that I'm double vaccinated, right? I think we all do whatever we can to help protect each other.
4: Congresswoman, thanks so much for your time.
3: Thank you.
0: That'll do it for this episode of New Mexico In Focus, but we encourage you to keep up with us throughout the week on all of our social media channels. That's Facebook, that's Instagram, that's Twitter, that's YouTube. You can find all of our stuff there. We've got lots of great things planned this week that we can't wait to bring to you. And if you have suggestions, leave us a comment here or on any of those platforms, and we do take those things into account as we're planning for the show. We love that feedback. Keep up the conversation with us. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and thanks for listening.